0: You're listening to Amazing
1: Discoveries Audio. This is Total Onslaught, Episode
0: 33, with Walter Feit. I've titled this lecture, 1844 and the Final Onslaught. You've probably realized by now that the final onslaught is against Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is often attacked in the form of his people as well. And so we have to deliberate this question of 1844. See, 1844 is the date of the end of the 2,300-day prophecy. And according to this prophecy, at the end of of the 2,300 days, there will be a cleansing of the sanctuary. That means judgment will be announced. And there will be a people to announce that judgment. And we have seen in Revelation chapter 10 how, through the unsealing of the book, the Seventh day Adventist church started preaching the judgment hour message. And then we saw that the message has the components of the three angels. And we went through the three angels' messages. And these messages are to be the final warning to the world. And they will reach a crescendo when the powers of the world close in on the system and they will reach a loud cry going to the world, laying bare the sins of Babylon, and people will be asked to come out of Babylon. So 1844 is an important yardstick in prophecy, and 1844 also gives credence to this final message and who presents it remember a prophecy a day is a year and 7 days would be 7 years i have appointed you each day for a year ezekiel after the number of days in which you searched the land 40 days each day for a year numbers 1434 and we discussed this vision in daniel chapter 8 where The time of the end is when this vision will be unsealed. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the hosts to be trodden underfoot? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy." Daniel 9, 24. Now this whole vision is the vision of the coming of Christ, the first part, culminating then in 1844, a date that is just hanging in the air, but which has great significance. Now I'm not going to deal with this part of the prophecy, there is a whole video called the Messiah, but uh, the first part, just to briefly state it, dealt with with the coming of the Messiah, from the issuing of the decree to when the gospel went to the Gentiles, 34 AD, and the rabbis issued this curse. May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And may his memory rot from off the face of the earth forever. Not a very nice curse. This is Talmudic law. This is in the Talmud. Talmudic law, page 978, section 2, line 28. So obviously, the rabbis didn't want anyone to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, because that would be a problem for the Jewish religion. So it's a very sad fact that this 2,300 day prophecy, where the first portion identifies the Messiah, should be under such a curse. Do you, can you imagine or do you think it's possible that the last part of the same prophecy which introduces a people who will want to set Jesus Christ back into his rightful position would also be under a curse? Is it possible? Don't you think that's possible? I think the devil hates this prophecy more than any other because it reveals in the first part of the prophecy who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Messiah. And in the last part of the prophecy, it reveals a people that will preach the everlasting gospel to the world and set Jesus back in his rightful position. So there's a total onslaught on the first part. There's the curse. There's a total onslaught on the last part as well. Because Jesus must be eliminated from the hearts and minds of the people. 1844, a judgment message was to go to the world. And the sanctuary message was again uncovered and understood. And the fullness of the sanctuary, the white linen, as we have said, the righteousness of Christ surrounding anyone who enters the door, and the sacrifice and all the issues of the sanctuary... Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2, We have such a high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. So is there a heavenly sanctuary according to Hebrews 8? Yes or no? Yes. Now this doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary, where Christ is officiating as high priest, is a doctrine which is heavily under attack in the world. Why? Because it sets Jesus Christ back into the center as the only Savior in the world. And it also tells us about His ministry and where He is officiating in the Holy or the Most Holy is very important. Because according to Seventh day Adventist doctrine, 1844, time of judgment must be Yom Kippur, He must have gone into the Most Holy. Now, if that is so, then the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a peculiar message to the world. One explaining the sanctuary, number one, the ministry of Jesus, the judgment hour, but it also makes them the herald of the final message. That's a problem. You can't have one denomination being a herald of a final message. You have to take that denomination away and make it part of the pots of ecumenism. Nobody has the right to say, we have a final message for the world. That would be exclusivity in the thinking of the world. So 1844 is heavily under attack. And the doctrine that Jesus Christ entered the most holy in 1844, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, antitypical day of atonement, is also heavily under attack. Hebrews 9 verse 3 And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Now, holiest of all here in the Bible is Hagia Hagion. That's what it says. Holiest of all. And Paul here uses this word Hagia Hagion for the most holy. And it's definitely after the second veil. Very important. So, the word hagia hagion is used for after the veil. So, unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel eight fourteen four fifty seven B C. The decree went out. Eighteen forty four is the date when you add the two thousand three hundred years. The first part of the of the prophecy here divided into seventy weeks. Cut off from this, fits the Messiah so perfectly that the Jews, the rabbis, have cursed anyone who studies it, lest they find the Messiah. Now what about this 1844? Is this the judgment herald, and is there a particular group of people coming out of a great disappointment who will preach this message, and they will keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? But Christ, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, but Christ being come a high priest by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's the King James Version. And it has translated this passage here of as holy place. Christ being come a high priest by his own blood, entered in once into the holy holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And the word used there is hagion, holy place. Actually, hagion doesn't necessarily have to mean holy place. It could just mean sanctuary. The King James Version has turned it into holy place. So the fact of the matter is, when Jesus died and he was resurrected, he went into the sanctuary. Now, where did he serve after he went into the sanctuary, if there is a heavenly sanctuary? Well, according to this, he went into the sanctuary and he must have gone into the holy place. That's the King James Version. Now, if he went into the holy place upon his resurrection, that means that according to the Jewish type, sometime thereafter, whenever that is, he must go from the holy into the most holy. Isn't that right? sometime thereafter, whatever that time is. Now, we don't know what time that is, except we have one prophecy which says after 2,300 days, then will the sanctuary be cleansed. That means we have a date, 1844, when he could go into that holy place, or the most holy place. That's the only prophecy there is. So, did he enter into the holy, or did he enter into the most holy when he went up to heaven. He's become a high priest by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Seven annual Jewish feasts and types and Antifa type. Remember we did them, the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, when Jesus uh, died, laid in the grave, and was resurrected, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And when He came the first time, He paid the price for sin. That's what He did. Then the seven annual feasts, we talked about them, the trumpets, heralding judgment. That would be the second Advent movement. That would start in 1844, if it is true. Day of Atonement, pre-Advent judgment, and tabernacle. So this is where we are living today. And 1844 is a powerful cut date, homegoing. Harvest of redemption. So when Jesus came the first time, He paid the price for sin. Did he take us all away from this terrible planet? Yes or no? No. When he comes a second time is the harvest of redemption. Then all the saved will be taken up to him. And the Day of Atonement was the annual cleansing of the earthly sanctuary. So basically, the doctrine says that since 1844, because that's the only date we have, we have been living in what the Bible calls judgment hour. So, 1844, judgment hour, then the end of the world, then comes eternity. At that time, shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of thy people. There will be a time of trouble, and the people will be delivered, that are found written in the book. But remember, Daniel shut up the words because they are for the time of the end. Now, we dealt with this when we dealt with the lecture on Revelation chapter 10. So, I'm not going to go into great detail again. Suffice to say that the time of the end was defined there as from the end of the 1,260 days, 538 AD, papal supremacy, 1798. And from that time onwards, the three angels' messages would go to the world. Now, do you know what's fascinating? Is that the world has changed some of these criteria for example they are saying that christ did not enter into the holy place but that he entered into the most holy place and if you have a new king james bible it actually says that the new king james bible changed the wording where the king james had it holy place changed it to most holy place but here's a problem because most holy is Hagiyah hagion and it only says "Hagion," So it doesn't say Hagiyah Hagion." So why would they change it? You see, if Jesus went into the most holy when he was raised from the dead and went to heaven, then there is no special, special circumstance around 1844. Do you understand that? Whereas if Jesus went into the holy, well, then 1844 becomes prominent and there is a special message and a special people to give it. So 1844 must be rubbed out, removed. And there are whole movements to remove it. Terrible movements. Now my question is simple, and this is this. If Jesus went to heaven to serve in the sanctuary, and the Bible says that he didn't enter by the blood of sheep and goats, but by his own precious blood. Then, when did he serve in the holy, if he went to the most holy? If the New King James is right and he went into the most holy, when did he serve in the holy? Because, after all, in the earthly, which is a copy of the heavenly, and is a copy of the service in the heavenly, he must have served some time in the holy. When was that? Well, then it must have been before he came to this earth, right? Because when he left this earth again, he went into the most holy, according to the New King James. Is that right? Okay. Question. With which blood? With which blood did he serve in the holy before he came here? With the blood of sheep and goats? No. So, in other words, Jesus could not have entered the most holy when he went to heaven. He could only have entered the holy. So no matter how much they cry, and how much they weep and wail over the fact that 1844 is a prophetic date, they're going to sit with a problem. Jesus could only have gone into the Hagion sanctuary, holy place, when he went up to heaven because that's the first time he had his own blood to serve with. That means he must have gone into the Most Holy at the later stage, and the only date we have is 1844. So 1844 stands, like it or not. Now, round about this date, this important end of time, date, or time of the end date at least, during the same period that the remnant preaches a message of separation, Satan sets up a counterfeit of unity. Starting with the French Revolution, remember, he replaces the law of God with his own earthly standard called human rights. And he puts the fascism on there, and he puts the uh, eye of Lucifer and the all-life-giving serpent, and he puts the hat of Mitra on there. So at this time period, we have Freemasonry, spiritualism, theosophy, false prophets, Mormon movement, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science movement, And at the same time, God raises up a standard against it, keeping the commandments of God and preaching a three angels message. Only the Seventh-day Adventist church does this. No other church in the whole world. No other church in the whole world preaches the sanctuary message of what the sanctuary stood for. There's only one church that does it in the whole world. Seventh-day Adventist church. It's kind of strange. Interesting events around 1844. Karl Marx, he joined the League of the Just in 1842, later the League of Communists, and he started writing the Communist Manifesto in 1844. What does that say? It says there is no God, let alone Jesus Christ. Let's get rid of him. So Jesus Christ is removed. Same time, another message goes into the world. Darwin, the origin of species. The origin of species, that mystery of mysteries. When did he start writing it? This is the foreword to the origin of species and you will find something interesting. I allowed myself to speculate on the subject and drew up some short notes. These are enlarged in 1844. It's very interesting. Second time we find 1844 in a very prominent place where we have an end time lying delusion going into the world. And there's a little group that says, no, there are many others as well. But they don't have the fullness of the three angels' message, nor do they have a sanctuary message. Isn't it interesting that the greatest representation at the United Nations, the Baha'i faith, was found when? By the Bab. There's the date. 1844. The Baha'i faith was founded in 1844 by Bahá'u'lláh, Allah. A faith founded by the Bab, meaning gates. So 1844 we finally get to a point where the world is ready for a movement which will say, all churches unite. Who's behind this movement? That's another story. I think we figured that out by now. Because who has the power in the United Nations? They or Roman Catholicism? Roman Catholicism has the power. So this is just a tool. But 1844 is an interesting date. The Baha'i faith upholds the fundamental unity of all religions. That's their first criterion. Independent investigation of truth, blah, 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 and all these interesting things. We've dealt with some of these already. Attainment of world peace, and we've discussed this. Well, I went into the Baha'i temple, and they have three books there. The Holy Bible, then they have the Quran, and then they have the messages of the Baha'u'llah. Uh, now, That was interesting to me. So I read it in the temple. Read it. And I found this page most interesting, so I photographed it. Page 217. And it says, O contending peoples and kindreds of the earth, set your face towards unity. See, this is the message of our time. And this message of unity goes into the world, what date? 1844. Message of unity, and let the radiance of its light shine upon you. Gather ye together, and for the sake of God, resolve to root out whatever is the source of contention amongst you. Then will the effluence of the world's great luminary, ooh, I get nervous when I hear that name, don't you? Envelop the whole earth and its inhabitants become the citizens of one city, and the occupants of one and the same throne. Whose throne do you think that will be? I think it'll be Lucifer's throne. This wronged one, capitalized. Now if you don't know, one is an acronym for Lucifer in the occult world. Has ever since the early days of his life cherished none other desire but this and will continue to entertain no wish except this wish. There can be no doubt whatever that the peoples of the world, of whatever race or religion, derive their inspiration from one heavenly source and are subject to one God. The difference between the ordinances under which they abide should be attributed to varying requirements and exigencies of the age in which they were revealed. All of them except a few, which are the outcome of human perversity, were ordained of God. That's interesting. All of them in the world were ordained of God except a few who are perverse. I wonder who they are. They were ordained of God and are a reflection of His will and purpose. Arise and armed with the power of faith, shatter to pieces the gods of your vain imaginings and sowers of dissension amongst you. Ooh, ooh. Cleave unto that which draweth you together and uniteth you. Tough act to follow. 1844, a message of unity. 1844, a message of separation. Who gives the message of separation? This strange crowd that preaches the three angels' message. And uh, except a few who are the outcome of human perversity. Interesting. Dan Wheatley writes, As a Baha'i, I see myself as a world citizen and I strongly believe that the world is moving closer to a united global community, a human family. Unity and diversity may sound like just another soundbite, a tripe piece of verbal cosmetics in an age where content is less important than presentation, the reality is that the concept of unity and diversity is a deeply spiritual concept. It is a key tenet of the Baha'i faith, and it is an essential concept to bear in mind when trying to find solutions to a wide range of global problems. So this is the greatest representation in the United Nations, so this is not just some, you know, little offshoot squeaky group somewhere. And they are there for a reason to have a big voice. What does it mean to be ecumenical? It means the whole inhabited world serving the wronged one. Modern spiritualism and all these things that we have dealt with, the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple from heaven, from throne, saying, It is done. Sooner or later, God is going to end this lie on this earth. And all the Blavatskys and all the Annie Basants and all the Alice Baileys with their doctrines from demonology will be exposed for what they are because they literally worship Lucifer. After all, this was published by Lucifer Publishing Company, so who else do they worship? Later changed to Lucifer's Trust to hide the name. Or all these strange prophets that came? Here's another interesting date. 1844, the Sinaitic Manuscript Codex Sinaiticus is discovered in Mount Sinai and forms the basis of all modern translations which remove Jesus Christ as God and as the only Savior of mankind. Do you think it's chance? Do you think this is chance? This is very strange. So at the same time, when this message of separation and worship God and give glory to Him... There's only one Savior, one gospel, one means of salvation. All these things come together, and the date is 1844. And you'll remember, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, is changed by Catholicism into she shall crush thy head. So here we see this interesting battle evolving in the last days. This is Robert Miller. He was the Under-Secretary General of the United Nations. Remember? The world's major religions in the end all want the same thing, even though they were born in different places and circumstances. You remember that story? What the world needs is a convergence of the different religions in the search and definition of the cosmic or divine laws which ought to regulate our behavior. Worldwide spiritual ecumenism. That is what they want. Everybody to come together. Peace will be impossible without the taming of fundamentalism through a united religion that professes faithfulness only to the global spirituality and to the health of this planet. So now these two groups are coming into opposition with each other. The new world religion, says Alice A. Bailey, must be based upon those truths which have stood the test of time. They are steadily taking shape in human thinking, and for them the United Nations fights My great personal dream is to get a tremendous alliance between all the major religions and the United States. Robert Miller. So the churches come together. Two messages in the world. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church also has the message, Do not accept the mark of the beast. Sabbath is the day of the Lord. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Papacy comes and says no. No. You must listen to me. I'll tell you when to worship your worship on the first day of the week, because I am the authority in your life. And so the papacy, in, on May 7, 1998, issued this famous apostolic letter, Dies Domini, of the Holy Father, John Paul, where he asks for Sunday legislation. Sunday, the primordial feast revealing the meaning of time, The spiritual and pastoral riches of Sunday as it has been handed on to us by tradition are truly great. Well, at least he admits it's not from the Bible, right? Significantly, the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that the Sunday celebration of the Lord's Day and his Eucharist is at the heart of the church's life. And then he explains who you worship on Sunday. This is his document. This is Pope John Paul's encyclical. As they listened to the word proclaimed on the Sunday assembly, the faithful looked to whom? To To Mary. Now what did Blavatsky say? Who's Mary? She says, Mary is really anthropomorphized Isis and is really Lucifer. That's what Blavatsky said. We did that in a previous lecture. So they look to the Virgin Mary, learning from her to keep it and ponder it in their hearts. With Mary they learn to stand at the foot of the cross, Offering the Father, etc., etc. With Mary, they experience the joy of the resurrection. And so he goes on and on and on and on and on. His mercy is from age to age, from Sunday to Sunday. The pilgrim people follow in the footsteps of Mary. Now, if you do not understand occult language, and this doesn't mean much, but if you know that to them, this Mary figure is really a form of the great luminary. Who can be both male or female, then this is serious business because I would like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ when I go to worship Him. And according to this, this is not what happens on a Sunday. Now, if you obey the papacy in this decree that He's asking for here, then who are you worshiping? God or this one? Obviously, this one. He goes on to continue. Only in the 4th century did the civil law of the Roman Empire recognize the weekly accountants determined that on the day of the sun, the judges, the people of the cities, and the various trade corporations would not work. And so he says, It would therefore be wrong to see in this old legislation of the rhythm of the week a mere historical circumstance with no special significance for the church and which he could simply set aside even after the fall of the empire, the councils did not cease to insist upon the arrangements regarding Sunday rest. So he says, don't think that was history. I'm talking about now. And then he goes on to quote the famous encyclical of Pope Leo Rerum Novarum. I quoted that to you in great detail. Do you remember in the lecture on the New World Order? That's okay to steal if you want to, as long as you have a need, and all these wonderful things, the whole... Question of economics and how it's going to work in the future. And then he says, therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our own time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So he's asking for civil legislation for Sunday. And Sunday Times, London came up, Pope launches crusade to save Sunday. Make it clear that Sunday must not be worked since it must be celebrated as the Lord's Day. That brings him into a clash with the Word of God and the Sabbath issue. Even Israel's minister of the interior wants to have Sunday introduced. That is an interesting one. June 2000, Süddeutsche Zeitung München. So we have human rights, yes, but those human rights are qualified that as long as you obey the papal system, you have these rights. Here's a right to freedom of religion. But freedom of religion means that you are not allowed to preach to anyone about Jesus Christ or about any doctrine, because that would be an offense to the other's freedom. Not yours. And then he came up with this fascinating encyclical called Ad Tuendum Fidem, by which certain norms are inserted into the code of canon law and into the code of canon laws of the Eastern Churches. And Canon One Four Three Six of the Catholic Church now is to read, according to Pope John Paul II, whoever denies or places in doubt any truth that must be believed with divine and Catholic faith, or repudiates the Christian faith as a whole, and does not come to his senses after having been legitimately warned is to be punished as a heretic. Oh, fascinating. So Pope John Paul II asks that people who don't agree with him must be punished as heretics. When last did they speak like that? In the Middle Ages. Well, they can be punished with penalties, not excluding deposition, take away what belongs to you. Aside from such cases, whoever rejects a doctrine proposed as definitively to be held by the Roman pontiff, question, did he not just define that we must keep Sunday, yes or no? All right, now what if I'm an Adventist, the Seventh-day Adventist, and I say the Bible says the Seventh-day? Do I then come into a clash with him, yes or no? Yes. By the Roman pontiff or the college of bishops exercising their authentic magisterium or else accepts a doctrine condemned by them as erroneous. Didn't he just say what he believes and anything else is not right? And does not come to his senses after having been legitimately warned is to be punished by an appropriate penalty. Very nice wording. What was the appropriate penalty in the past? Death. Death was the appropriate penalty. Do you think they could go that far? Do you think they could go that far? Well, it's interesting. And then we order that everything decreed by us, capital, in this apostolic letter, moto priori, be firm and valid, and we command that it be inserted in the universal law of the Catholic Church, that is, in the code of canon law, and in the code of canons, blah, 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 given at Rome, St. Peter's 18 May 1998, In the 20th year of our capital pontificate. That's quite arrogant. Us and our capitalized. Who else uses us and our capitals? God. Let us make man in our image. So the Pope says here, very cryptically, that he's God. And he's ruling you. And he's telling you to keep Sunday, whether you like it or not. Remember that when we did Revelation chapter 10, I told you there are only two truly worldwide religious movements in the world. The one is the Roman Catholic system, the other one is the Seventh day Adventist Church. The Roman Catholic system preaches keep Sunday and keep my commandments, and the Seventh day Adventist Church preaches keep God's commandments. Stay faithful to Him, and the Sabbath is a sign of obedience to God. We'll keep the Sabbath. Listen to the word of God, don't listen to the word of man. Well, you remember this one made in 1969 by the Catholic Church? Not the creator of the universe in Genesis 2.1, but the Catholic Church can claim the honor of having granted man a pause to his work every seven days. Reason and common sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping only of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping only of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Do you remember that? It was Rome speaking. And she says, Sunday is the offspring of the Catholic Church. We've read that. Without Protestants reprisal. And she says, you can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You will not find one scripture authorizing Sunday. And they're quite right. They've done their homework. Cardinal Gibbons knows his Bible. They're adamant that it's a creation of the Catholic Church. It's a law of the Catholic Church. And Protestants pay homage to the Catholic Church when they obey. Now, in the question box, they answered that in this matter, the Sabbath question, the Seventh day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. Now, that was in 1942. And I showed you as well that the cardinal wrote here people who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Now, that's fascinating stuff, and you'll say that's history. Maybe Rome's changed. Well, I have news for you. Here is Rome's challenge, and it comes from the Roman Catholic webpage, immaculateheart.com, and it was issued in December 2003. How long ago is that? Okay. And let me read it to you. It's very fascinating what the Roman Catholic Church has to say today on this issue. Most Christians, there's their It comes straight from them, not from me. I didn't make this up. Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Roman Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath Saturday to Sunday, and that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings only on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. Right, that's the Roman Catholic Church speaking today. Do you think they might go further? That would be interesting. What else have you got to say? Well, they republished this article that they had published in 1893, from which I quoted in the last uh, lecture. Now, why are they re-quoting this full article on the, on the Catholic web page? Well, they're saying over here, in February 24, 1893, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists adopted certain resolutions appealing to the government and people of the United States from the decision of the Supreme Court declaring this to be a Christian nation and from the action of Congress in legislating upon the subject of religion. And in answer to this, In March 1893, the International Religious Liberty Association printed these resolutions in a tract uh, entitled Appeal and Remonstrance, and on receipt of these, the edition of the Catholic Mirror of Baltimore, Maryland, published a series of four editorials which appeared in that paper September 2, 9, 16, 23, 1893. And the Catholic Mirror was the official organ of Cardinal Gibbons and the Vatican. In the United States, so it's a very official document that they publish. So, why did they publish this? Because the Seventh Day Adventists appealed to keep church and state separate. Now, their webpage Mary Online reprints this whole article, and I'm not going to deal with it in detail again. Basically, the article is an expose of Sabbath, and it is a wonderful study. Better or equal to what any scholar in the Seventh-day Adventist church would come up with, saying why the Sabbath is the day of the Lord. So they prove from the Bible that the Sabbath, the seventh day, is the day of the Lord, so that they can claim that they changed it. They're not shy of having changed it. They're not hiding it. They admit it. They're arrogant about it. Those are the facts. So now let's continue. I'll just quote a little bit from that one where they said, Protestants say, how can I receive the teachings of an apostate church? How, we asked, have you managed to receive her teachings all your life in direct opposition to your recognized teacher, the Bible, on the Sabbath question? That was that article in 1893. And then those who follow the Bible as their guide, the Israelites and Seventh-day Adventists, have the exclusive weight of evidence on their side. So they published this again. And then... They state over here, the Adventists are the only body of Christians with the Bible as their teacher who can find no warrant in its pages for the change of the the day from the seventh to the first, hence their appellation, Seventh-day Adventists. And so we continue. They write there, no Protestant living today has ever yet obeyed that command, preferring to follow the apostate church, in inverted commas, referred to than its teacher, the Bible, which from Genesis to Revelation teaches no other doctrine. Should the Israelites and Seventh-day Adventists be correct, both sides appeal to the Bible as their infallible teacher. Let the Bible decide whether Saturday or Sunday be the day enjoined by God. One of the two bodies must be wrong. And then they give this long Bible study about this issue. And then there's an editor's notes. And notice this interesting editor's notes. It was upon this very point that the Reformation was condemned by the Council of Trent. Wow! Did you know that the whole Reformation failed at the Council of Trent because of the Sabbath issue? Did you know that? Wow! What happened? Interesting. You see, the Reformers had constantly charged, as is here stated, that the Catholic Church had apostatized from the truth as contained in the written word, the written word, the Bible, and the Bible only. Thus says the Lord, these were their constant watchwords, and the scripture as in the written word, the sole standard of appeal, this was the proclaimed platform of the Reformation and of Protestantism. The scripture and tradition, that was what the Catholic Church said, the Bible as interpreted by the church, and a according to the unanimous consent of the Fathers, this was the position and claim of the Catholic Church. This was the main issue in the Council of Trent. Interesting point. Which was called especially to consider the question that had been raised and forced upon the attention of Europe by the Reformers. Did you know that the Reformation could have succeeded? It could have succeeded. Finally, after a long and intensive strain, because there were many Catholics who were willing to give up tradition and accept the Bible and the Bible alone? It was knife cutting edge stuff. Our Archbishop of Reggio came into the council with substantially the following arguments to the party who held the Scripture alone. And he said The Protestants claim to stand upon the written word only, they profess to hold the Scripture alone as the standard of faith. They justify their revolt by the plea that the church has apostatized from the written word and follows tradition. Now, the Protestants claim that they stand upon the written word only is not true. The profession of holding scripture alone is the standard of faith is false. Proof. The written word explicitly adjoins the observance of the seventh day as the Sabbath. They do not observe the seventh day, but reject it. That was his argument. If they truly hold to the scriptures alone as their standard, they would be observing the seventh day as enjoined by the scriptures. Yet they not only reject the observance of the Sabbath enjoined in the written word, but they have adopted and do practice the observance of Sunday, which they have only tradition of the church. Consequently, the claim of scripture alone as the standard fails, and the doctrine of scripture and tradition as essential is fully established, the Protestants themselves being judges. So the Reformation failed because of the Sabbath issue. That's very interesting. Then he continues, this was the inconsistency of Protestant practice with the Protestant profession that gave the Catholic Church a long-sought and anxiously desired ground upon which to condemn Protestantism and the whole Reformation movement as only a selfish, ambitious rebellion against church authority. Then they continued, and this is today the position of the respective parties to this controversy. Today, as the document shows, this is the vital issue upon which the Catholic Church arraigns Protestantism and upon which she condemns the course of popular Protestantism as being indefensible, self-contradictory, and suicidal. What will these Protestants, what will this Protestantism do? Wow, what a challenge that was. Wasn't that a challenge? So the Reformation failed because of the Sabbath issue. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says, when it talks about Sardis in the seven churches, I have not found your work complete in the eyes of God. Nevertheless, there will be those in Sardis who will walk with me in white. And I believe there will. The Luthers and the Melanchotons and all these great reformers will walk in white. They walked after the best light that they had, but they knew of the Sabbath issue, but they refused to backtrack. In fact, their own Augsburg confession condemned them. Now let's see what the editor of Mary Online made with this letter, December 2003, and take note. The challenge issued by Rome of a hundred years ago remains. These apostolic writings that were published then. Either the Catholic Church is right, or the Seventh-day Adventists are right, there can be no other choice. Now that's not me saying this, I didn't invent it. This is the Roman Catholic Church speaking today. And I understand why I'm in this position. So who do they declare as they, their confirmed opponent? What does the Roman Catholic Church say? Who is the only consistent Protestant, and who is the only one that opposes them on this issue? The Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now can you understand why the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a rebuke not only to Catholicism, but also to Protestantism? Yes or no? It must be. And so they will be reviled and called sects by both Catholicism and Protestantism. So basically, if this is so, I have been preaching it here. This is the position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Irrespective of what others are doing, and Catholicism agrees heartily. In fact, says the editor, there can be no other choice. So we have been discussing how the Roman Catholic Church said either the Catholic Church is right or the Seventh-day Adventists are right, there can be no other choice. If you look then at the 1999 interfaith meeting, where the Pope was elected as the spiritual leader of the world, where it was asked that they join in condemning the Christian fundamentalists who abuse speech and whose efforts at converting others incite hatred and violence. Who is that then directed to largely, do you think? Must be the Seventh-day Adventists, because they are the consistent Protestants that preach against anti-biblical doctrines. All present were of one accord, two key points. Pope John Paul II was endorsed by consensus as the plan of chief spiritual guide and overseer, and these religious fundamentalists who refuse to go along with the global ecumenical movement are to be silenced. Well, who are they? Who are they? They've just identified them. They said who the problem child is. And George W. Bush says, the best way to honor Pope John Paul II, truly one of the great men, is to take his teachings seriously, to listen to his words, and put his words into teachings here and to... Here in action into America, this is a challenge we must accept. So is the United States going to accept papal doctrine, or is it going to accept biblical doctrine? Papal doctrine, he just said so. So they want to make laws. And this is another thing that Revelation says. They will do it. So we can see a world chat, clash coming along. Let's have a look at these interesting quotes. These are, every single one here, here is referenced. God works in many ways through many faiths and religious agency. This is one reason for the elimination of non-essential doctrines. You see? If something doesn't fit into the ecumenism, what must you do with it? Get rid of it. What doesn't fit into ecumenism? Sabbath keeping. It must go. Other steps will also be taken in this department of religion and education over which the Christ rules and he will move to restore the ancient spiritual landmarks to eliminate that which is non-essential and to reorganize the entire religious field again in preparation for the restoration of the mysteries? These mysteries, when restored, will unify all faiths. Question. Can we go along with that, yes or no? Answer is no. This is a serious issue. New Age, Natalie Bank states, looking below the seething surface of outer events, we become aware of the spreading move towards the elimination of sectarian separativeness and an increasing distaste for reliance on hard and fast doctrine and dogma. At the same time, there's an intensified search for a deeper understanding of the inner teachings and their application to the enormous problems of today. So what are they looking for? Get rid of those doctrines which separate. Can you see how the Sabbath is becoming a mighty issue? How we will have to stand for truth and righteousness and Jesus Christ is to be just scrapped in the shredder? This is a total onslaught on Jesus Christ through his people. Thomas Aaron Zeller, director of World Federalists Assert, a growing number of people are sponsoring a backlash against the wave of religious fundamental fanaticism. The right course to take is that which will lead to a new world of unity and world law. One quote after another. Alice A. Bailey said the same. The day is dawning when all religions will be regarded as emanating from one source. They will accept the same truths, not as theological concepts, but as essential to spiritual living, a brotherhood of human relations. Well, that might sound nice on paper, but it's not what God says. Thus the expression, aims, and efforts of the United Nations will be eventually brought to fruition, and a new church of God, gathered out of all religions and spiritual groups, will unitedly bring to an end the great heresy of separateness. Love, unity, and the risen Christ will be present and he will demonstrate to us the perfect life. The great heresy of separateness. What does the loud cry say? Come out and be separate. There's a huge clash here. Now I understand why the United Nations made a point of coming to speak to my denomination and say there's only one way and that's the United Nations. There's only one body that will do it and that's the United Nations. And Blah, 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 blah. Molly well, might have said that, but me personally, I'm not interested in that. She states that the enlightened people will not tolerate authoritarianism in any church or totalitarianism in any political system. They will not accept or permit the rule of any body of men who undertake to tell them what they must believe in order to be saved. Oops. So what if the Bible says, there is only one way under heaven and earth whereby you may be saved, and that is through Christ Jesus. They will not permit us to say that, right? You may not say that anymore. Well, it's already against the law. It's against the hate laws. William Irvin Thomas, a New Ager, indicates that the form of the church in the New Age will remain the same. Thus, churchgoers are less likely to notice that there has been a change in the message. He says, The new spirituality does not reject the earlier patterns of the great universal religions. Priests and church will not disappear. They will not be forced out of existence in the New Age. They will be absorbed into existence of the New Age. Isn't that brilliant? God has called a movement since 1844 to stand against this movement. And what a crisis we are going to face. What a crisis we are going to face. I have the worst invitation for you in the world. How would you like to come to an organization that's going to be the pariah of the world, the most distasteful, the most hated sect in all the world, and they keep the Sabbath contrary to a law of the Roman Catholic Church, which is to be propagated in all the world, and come and be a hated sectarian. Nice invitation. Who's going to follow that? Doesn't sound too good to me. But what if the other side is going to see the wrath of God, and God has promised to protect all those who rally around his word, Wouldn't that be an interesting scenario? And who would answer to a request like that? I'll tell you who will answer. Only those who really believe and trust that Jesus will do it. No one else. Is there a better separating message than this? I don't think so. I don't think so. Preparation by men and women of goodwill is needed to introduce new values of living, new standards of behavior, new attitudes. World teacher will be mainly concerned with requirements of a new world order and a reorganization of the social structure. That was a flyer from World Goodwill. This is not a Mickey Mouse organization. This was founded by all the great leaders of the world. Robert Miller-Wells writes, The world's major religions must speed up dramatically their ecumenical movement and recognize the unity of their objectives in the diversity of their cults. Religions must actively cooperate to bring to unprecedented heights a better understanding of the mysteries of life and of our place in the universe. My religion, right or wrong, my nation, right or wrong, must be abandoned forever in the planetary age. Sorry, the Bible and the Bible alone or nothing. Jesus was wrong, says Dwal Kul. Who is he? Dwal Kul is a demon who speak, spoke to Alice A. Bailey. Jesus was wrong about the dividing of the sheep and the goats. It has been thought that the, that the sheep went to heaven and the goats went to hell. It's the other way around. Remember that this is not a joke. That the United Nations has said that they based their writings on Alice A. Bailey who channeled Dwal Kul. This is not a joke. This is serious stuff. The goat in Capricorn is the initiate and and from a certain esoteric angle the goats do go to heaven because they function in the spiritual kingdom. The sheep remain on earth until they become goats. What a lot of rubbish. Entrance into heaven, declares Dwalkul, is entrance into the Aquarian age and Piscian Christian in other words, forces will be receding rapidly. This is a war on Jesus Christ. This is not a war on any sect or individual. We just happen to be caught in the middle with a choice. World good will stay. The radiant light, the message of Christ, cannot have anything to do with somber teachings of the churches based on death, crucifixion, agony, eternal hell, wrath of a vengeful God. To build a new civilization based on the emerging new consciousness in humanity, the church organizations, if they want to survive, will have to adjust to the spiritual hierarchy That means the demonic leadership of the new age. This is a problem. Humanity will not be able to make the transition from earth only to universal life until the chaff has separated from the wheat. Democratic vice president nominee for 1984 and executive director of the World Future Society, Barbara Marks Hubbard doesn't mince words. Wow, she surely doesn't. No worldly peace can prevail until the self-centered members of the planetary body either change or die. That is the choice. They must surely die or change. What did the Pope say? They must be condemned as a heretic and they must suffer an appropriate penalty. Well, let's ask his cronies what the penalty is. Change or die, that's the penalty. The act is, a, is as horrible as killing a cancer cell. It must be done for the sake of the future of the whole. Well, I don't have to read all these quotes about defective seeds and they must be cut out. Dual Kool speaking to Alice A. Bailey, A violent streptococcus germ and infection has menaced the, menaced the life of humanity. The germ makes its presence felt in infected areas in the human body. In the body of humanity, another surgical operation may be necessary to get rid. It has to go. Death is not a disaster. Much destruction will be permitted. Do you think we're heading for another Auschwitz experience? I don't want to make anybody afraid, but these are just quotes. These hindrances will be brought under the care of the great ones who will nurse them back to a healthy state. Thank you. You stay with yourself. I don't need your healthy state. This can be done much better and more quickly without the physical body. See how clever this is? Well, let's just transport him to the other side. Ruth Montgomery says that the souls will have passed into the spirit to rethink their attitudes. These are all absolute bomber quotes. They are real. They're not jokes. Former New Ager Randall Bear states, that those who refuse the mark of the beast will be targeted for extermination and what would emphatically be called re-education centers of love and relocation. Must change or perish. Says a Templeton Prize winner. Remember that Billy Graham was a Templeton Prize winner. Now this is a high horse, Dr. Adler. He's chairman of the board of editors of Encyclopedia Britannica, director of the Institute for Philosophical Research in Chicago, chairman of the PIDA Project, honorary trustee of the Aspen Institute, and highly honored by the highest forums in the world. He says, Simply stated, Adler argues that we will not be able to attain world peace until we attain cultural unity, but he argues that there is only one obstacle to this unity, Christianity. Which Christianity? The one that stands on the... Bible and the Bible alone. Christianity claims supernatural knowledge and divine revelation that is divisive and not open to rational debate, should not be tolerated. Now, these are high individuals who are saying these things. So, a Christianity that is based on absolutely the Bible cannot be tolerated. You know what? I'm excited. You know why? Because we must be so close to the end. And if you knew the promises that God has in store for them that love Him, wow! And how God will protect His people like He protected the Israelites of old. Do these people know that plagues are coming? And that God will make a difference between His people and them? He made a difference amongst the Egyptians. There were 10 plagues. The first three. Fell on everyone, but the last seven only on the Egyptians. How many plagues at the end of time? Are we going to dispense with the first three? Isn't that nice? I'm telling you something. It's worth it to follow God. They can bark as much as they like, they are barking up the wrong tree, they are fighting God. Wow, God snaps his finger and they would be gone. What arrogance. Christian churches writes Rothschild in reality and illusion must also kill out all separativeness. You see, that's the problem. And learn to cooperate with all the other faiths whose scriptures are of equal value and beauty as the New Testament. Okay, continue. Christopher Hyatt refers to Christian fundamentalists as the shadow in emerging society. It reveals how this changing of the gods will take place. And the earth still requires some blood. These people will have to be eradicated. I see it has required a lot of blood, disruption, chaos, and pain for a mass change to occur. Bailey's booklet advises, there must be no distress over the disappearance of the old order. Okay. The good, the true, and the beautiful is on its way, And for it, mankind is responsible and not some outer divine intervention. What does the the Seventh-day Adventist church teach? There will be an outer divine intervention. That's what the Seventh-day Adventists teach. What do the other denominations teach? No. There will be a rapture and a total conversion. That's a lie. Protestantism is even lying to its own people. It's not what the Bible teaches. John 16 verse two, "They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service." That's biblical. John 16:33, "These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." Right This was the video that was on uh, national television by CNN after the September 11 event.
1: In war, countries suffer casualties. The risk in a democracy like the United States is that the Constitution will be one of them. Here are some of the new rules. Suspects can be held for up to seven days without being charged with anything. The Los Angeles Times reported this past week that more than 1,000 are being detained. Also, the government can eavesdrop on any conversations these detainees have with their lawyers. The feds used to have to have evidence, get a judge to authorize the eavesdropping. No longer. Suspicion is enough. Also, foreigners can be tried by special military courts. These would be secret, no reporters allowed. The defendants might or might not have lawyers, how would we know? The courts could admit evidence that would be inadmissible in civil court, hearsay, gossip, whatever. Juries wouldn't have to be unanimous to sentence defendants to death. There would be no appeals. Got to be able to do this, the government says, to fight terror. Anyway, Attorney General John Ashcroft says, foreign terrorists do not deserve the protections of the American Constitution. Patrick Leahy of Vermont says it sends a message that it is acceptable to hold secret trials and summary executions without the possibility of judicial review, which is certainly true. New York Times columnist William Sapphire says, the president of the United States has just assumed what amounts to dictatorial power to jail or execute aliens. There is precedent. During World War II, the United States secretly tried Germans who landed here by submarine with plans for sabotage. They were convicted, most were hanged, and the Supreme Court upheld that action. So, secret Star Chamber trials are apparently constitutional, but they do deny defendants the protection the Constitution offers. On the other hand, the men who bombed the World Trade Center in 1993 were tried in civil court with constitutional protections, and that seemed to work. Maybe the question is, what kind of a message does it send when a country that prides itself on its freedoms, its democracy, says, yes, we can hold you for a week without charging you, yes, we can eavesdrop when you talk to your lawyer, and if you're foreign, we can try you and kill you in secret. Is that what democracies do? I'm Bruce Morton.
0: Now, what is interesting is that George Bush qualified this and said, if you now speak deliberately against the United States, then you also qualify as a terrorist. That's interesting. So they can hold you without trial. They can put you to death. I mean, all these laws are now in place. There's nothing that you need to wait for some major change to happen. Everything is in place. Everything can happen very quickly. A period of extreme tribulation and unprecedented misery is soon to cover the entire world. Destruction of undesirable elements. This is Laurie Krishna, uh, Kalki Avatar speaking. Maharishi Mahesh Yoga. Interesting man. What does he say? The man who brought the occultic practice of transcendental meditation says, there has not and there will not be a place for the unfit. The fit will lead and the unfit are not coming along. There is no place for them. In the Age of Enlightenment, there is no place for ignorant people. Interesting. Matthew Fox, remember this is this famous Catholic theologian. He speaks of the New Age with its four billion occupants. What happened to the other three billion? What happened to them? Author John Randolph Price, author of Super Beings, identifies Christians in the statement. There are some groups who continue to cling to the absurd idea that man is a miserable sinner and a worm of the dust. He also notifies us that two and a half billion people will be killed. And uh, New Ager humanist John Dunphy refers to Christianity as a rotting corpse. We could go on and on. This is a nice man, uh, Prince Philip. He says, In the event that I am reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus in order to contribute something to solve overpopulation. These people are high occultists, they're very friendly. Ted Turner, chairman of the Better World Society, called Christians bozos and losers. And he also said the population must uh, go down. So he wants 250 to 350 million people on earth, a 95% decline. Well, who knows? Maybe i will set an example one day. The Georgia Guidestones. Very interesting stones here in the United States. There they are in Georgia. And what are they? One of the highest hilltops in Elbert County, Georgia, stands a huge granite monument engraved in eight different languages on four giant stones that support the common capstone or ten guides or commandments. The monument is alternatively referred to as the Georgia Guidestones or American Stonehenge. The message is, maintain humanity under half a billion. That's interesting. What must happen to the rest? Guide reproduction wisely, improve fitness, unite humanity with living new language, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason, protect people and nations with fair laws, let all nations rule internally, resolve external disputes in a world court, avoid petty laws, balance personal rights, blah, 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 prize truth, be not a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. Ten rules. What happens to the rest of humanity? What do they want to do? These people have murder in their hearts. Well, fascinating stuff. There's the original Stonehenge. There's a little hole in this Georgia stone. The hole in the stone was drilled in the center stone so that the north star, which in masonry is a symbol of Lucifer, could be visualized through it at any moment. This was one of the several requirements stipulated by a so-called R.C. Christian for the building of the American Stonehenge. And then it says over here, the Georgia Guidestones, let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Age of reason. Now that's an interesting statement because the Age of Reason was a book written by Thomas Paine. Its intent was to destroy the Judeo-Christian beliefs upon which the USA Republic was founded. Interesting stuff that's coming together. Well, I have news for these future murderers and their little plans. Daniel 2 verse 44 says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. What a tremendous promise. Malachi 3.5, and I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. These people are sorcerers. They are worshiping Lucifer, and against the adulterers, and the false swearers, and those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from the right and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. Nine testimonies, spirit of prophecy, oh, that we might see the need of these cities as God sees them. At such a time as this, every hand is to be employed. The Lord is coming. The end is near. Yea, it hasteth greatly. In a little while we shall be unable to work with the freedom that we now enjoy. Terrible scenes are before us, and what we do, we must do quickly. Why do we sleep so? Even my own church. How often in my own church do I hear people, Oh, the Lord's not coming yet. We have lots of time. Don't they have watchmen on the wall of Zion that watch and see and look at all these things? I don't believe we have a lot of time. I think we're this close. And they know who the enemy is. They've identified him. It is our duty now to employ every possible means to help in the proclamation of the truth. We are to work as we have never worked before. The Lord is coming very soon, and we are entering into scenes of calamity. Satanic agencies, though unseen, are working to destroy human life. I believe this woman was a prophet. Now is our time to work with vigilance. Our books and papers are to be brought to the notice of the people. The gospel of present truth is to be given to our cities without delay. We need to arouse to our duties. I want to tell you today, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe with all my heart that they preach the truth. And I want to tell you something else. I fought Hook, line, and sinker not to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Do you think I wanted to give up everything in the world? I had everything. I was a professor at the university. I had this, that, and the other. I had everything. I didn't want to give it up. I had no choice. Because I checked out all the doctrines. I wanted to find a way out. Believe me, I searched to find a way out. There is no way out as Roman Catholicism says, it's either the one or the other. They themselves say there is no other choice. So I concur with them. I was a Roman Catholic. I had to switch sides. And I did. And I don't want to fight anyone. I don't want to create war. I don't want to hurt anyone. I just wanted people to understand that they be saved. Why will you die, Oh house of Israel? Why do you want to die? Accept the truth. Come out. Make Jesus your king. What's the matter with us? Can't we see what's happening in the world? Impending destruction. Also a spirit of prophecy, Adventist home. The time is near when large cities will be swept away and all should be warned of these coming judgments. Oh, that God's people had a sense of the impending destruction of thousands of cities now almost given to idolatry. Well, are they planning the destruction of many people? Yes or no? and they will use it as an excuse to eliminate the others with them. Daniel 7, 18, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Isn't that a tremendous promise? So what are we afraid of? I'm not afraid. I have learned to trust that God will do everything that He promises. And He has promised it, it will not come near your gate. He has promised it. He said, the plagues will fall, a thousand will fall by your side, ten thousand by your right hand, it will not come near you. Internalize the promises. Read your Bibles, read your Bibles, make the promises your own. If you want to pick up my Bible, look in it. Every page has P's on it. Everywhere I find a promise of God, I put a P and I say, thank you Lord, that's for me. And it is for you too. Every promise is yea and amen in God's word. And we will need the promises. But it's not enough to read them. We need to believe them. And for that, we need a relationship. You need oil. Pour the oil of experience into your bottles so that when the Lord comes, you will be able to stand. We are going home very soon. And all of those who are guests here tonight, I apologize for hurting many feelings. I apologize profusely because I know that what I say cuts to the bone and means change. It means change. But I want you to believe that I'm, I'm doing this with absolute conviction that this is the truth. And I believe that I have the Bible to back it up, every single word. And I've done everything in my power to give you the evidence that this is true. And you can reject it. That's your freedom of choice. That's the beauty of freedom of choice. But you will not be able to say you haven't heard it. You will not be able to say that. And if you're thinking, well, why didn't I stay away? Why didn't I just stay away? Then I could have skipped this disaster. (laughs) I often wished, why did I ever get to know this carpenter, this pain in the neck who gave me a pamphlet? Why did I ever meet him? Yes, I've thought that many a times. But wow, I'll tell you something. To work with God is an experience. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't want it any other way. Fortunately, God gives you the calamities piece by piece. He doesn't give it to you all at once. But this is the fact of the matter. And I'm not putting any pressure on you. I'm giving you the facts. People call me the facts man. Choose. Either it's from God or I'm a total raving lunatic. That's your choice. If this episode impacted you, Please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode
1: on ADTV.watch.